Coming up today, ducks, eels and simulated shouting. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Yorkshire Tea and PG Tips came out as staunchly anti-racist as protests sparked by the death of George Floyd took a decidedly corporate and even more decidedly British turn. Racists have been told they will need to buy a different brand of tea. And it was also the week when the UK announced it was further relaxing its social distancing rules. So from Saturday, people in a household where there is just one adult can now form a social bubble with one other household. This was also the week when Twitter introduced a new prompt to users. If someone tries to retweet an article they haven't opened, they were prompted to ask whether they want to read it first. The effort is being introduced to try and stop the spread of fake news. And finally, this was the week when Amazon temporarily banned police forces from using its controversial facial recognition technology. It says it enacted the year-long ban to give lawmakers the opportunity to pass regulations governing how the technology should be used. It's one hell of a bold PR move by Amazon, isn't it? Not to outright say, nah, you can't use the technology, but to put it on hold for a year while also allowing various other security agencies to continue using it's technology. Yeah, it's, it's very much the definition of lip service, isn't it? And sort of, uh, we're doing something now in the hope that in a couple of months' time we can go back to doing what we were doing before and you'll all have forgotten. And uh, Matt Reynolds, I just wanted to get some clarity on the rules around social bubbles. So if I'm a single parent with a child, my child and I can go and visit my parents and stay overnight. Yeah, that's right. So basically, it's any household in which there is just one adult, but it can be any number of people uh, living in the same household under 18. You have to choose to buddy up with another household. That, that household can have however many people you like. And the idea is you only interact, uh, you know, go into their home, you know, stay over with that household. And, um, you know, you don't do any social events with any other household. So it's a little bit, a little bit confusing. It's not the clearest defined new rule, I have to say. But a child in a two-parent household cannot visit their grandparents indoors unless the grandparent lives alone, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. It's, it's all wonderfully vague. The, the idea here, I suppose, is to limit the number of households that this applies to. Yeah, I think what yeah, so I looked this up. There's about 8.9 million single parents in the UK and I think a further no, or 8.9 million adults living alone and then a further 2.7 million um households where there is only one adult. I I think it's it's roughly that. So this is actually a kind of a bunch of people uh you know, by the government's reasoning, these are a bunch of some of the most isolated people. So it's a way to get them seeing their family um in a way that doesn't really increase the net number of meetings. Because, you know, if you're having a family of eight meeting another family of eight, that's not that far off a small pub. But if you're having, by definition, one person or probably three people meeting a family of four people, it's going to be uh, a lot smaller. But I suspect there'll be lots and lots of confusion around this, and we might see these rules um, superseded by something else in the coming weeks anyway. Yeah, it's probably quite a temporary measure before potentially more measures are introduced or eased. Okay, what did we learn this week? Let's start with you, Matt Burgess. Uh, This week I learned that approximately 70% of UK train journeys either start or finish in London. That's it? That's it. That's That's the whole fact. It's a good one. Thank you very much, Matt. (laughs) Amit, what did you learn this week? Uh, I learnt about cosmonaut Sergei Krikalev, who was stranded on board the space station Mir when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. He was in orbit when this was all happening, and as part of the collapse of the Soviet Union, it lost its cosmodrome, which was in newly independent Kazakhstan. So Krikalev ended up spending 313 days in space, which is the third longest stint ever. Uh, Apparently, the army almost put out a warrant for his arrest for skipping military service until they realised that he was not actually on the planet. It's a pretty good excuse. Uh, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? So 
I learned that eels used to be so widely eaten and uh, caught in medieval Britain that they were used to pay taxes. So the Doomsday Book records a debt of 75,000 eels owed by the village of Harmston to Earl Hugh of Chester, who was the village's landlord. And there will be much more eel news later in the show. Something to look forward to. I learned this week that there are 515,000 millionaires currently living in London. And at the same time, there are almost 800,000 children living in poverty in London. So there's some nice context. Amit, a magpie update, if you will. So you can look at this in one of two ways. Either the magpies have moved nest and what I saw was them coming back to fetch bits from their current nest to go to their new nest. Or the magpies are dead and what I saw was another family of magpies ransacking the nest. So it all kind of depends on your on your world view, really. Mm, maybe they're doing what a lot of people are doing and looking for larger property with uh, a better garden in the countryside. Yeah, or maybe they bubbled up with another family of magpies to, to ease some of their loneliness. I don't know. Well, <laughs> hope springs eternal. <laughs> the lockdown has been harsh on the magpies as well. Uh, let's remind you of the podcast pub quiz, which is coming up on Wednesday, the 1st of July at 8 p.m. London time. This is your chance to watch the Wired podcast team compete for the trivia crown, which is currently proudly worn by Matt Reynolds. You can play along at home as well and ask us any burning questions you might have. The last one was a really, really great evening and lots of you joined us to watch and play along live. We hope even more of you can make it this time. We're doing it over Zoom. The first show, as I said, was a big success. Head to tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz two to register your place. Matt Burgess, that URL? That is tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz two. And that is the, the number two, not written out in letters. All one word, the number two. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes as well and tweet it out uh, at Jay Temperton. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's a, it's a great Twitter account to follow. That's on Wednesday, the 1st of July at 8 o'clock London time. OK, our first story this week, Amit, is the return of the football, but not the blokes kicking a ball around on a pitch. We're focusing on the people who aren't in the stands. Yeah, so uh, as you'll probably know, the Premier League returns next Wednesday. I am very, very excited about it, obviously. Um, so after much kind of wrangling back and forth, uh, it's been decided that the games will be played at clubs' home venues rather than at neutral venues. Uh, although obviously, because of the uh, ongoing pandemic, fans still can't go to the stadium. So they're being played behind closed doors with only a small number of staff and you know support staff, doctors, etc. allowed in the ground along with the players. Now, if you've been watching any of the German Bundesliga, which resumed a few weeks ago in kind of similar settings, you'll have noticed that watching football without fans isn't quite the same. It feels a lot like watching a training game. It's really missing something. Now, it's quite vital for sports broadcasters that this project restart, as they're calling it, is a success. They really need the revenue from fans. So many of them have paused their expensive monthly subscriptions during the period with no sport. So uh, broadcasters have been trialling all sorts of technology to try and recreate some of the sense of camaraderie and atmosphere that you get from having, you know, thousands of people gathered in a stadium to watch sport. Now, I understand that to the footballers, it might make a difference, you know, uh, having the encouragement of home fans. We talked before about the, you know, the home advantage and how much of a difference it makes playing in front of people. But why are the broadcasters so interested? I mean, they can put commentary on top. Does it really matter if we if we hear noisy people in the stands or not? Yeah, so crowd noise is a really kind of important cue for how exciting people kind of view a game as being. So researchers found that viewers, if you artificially enhance the crowd response in a game people are watching, they rate it as more exciting. If you dampen that down, they rate it as less exciting. Um, I think when you're watching from home as well in, in this kind of age when we've all got second screens on the go and none of us can pay attention to anything for more than about 10 seconds, uh, crowd noise is a really important cue for when you should pay attention, when you should look up in the same way that, you know, a filmmaker might use music to alert you to like a key scene in a movie. Like uh, you can tell from the tone of the commentator's voice rising when something exciting is about to happen or from the kind of crowd noise uh, rising to a crescendo when uh exciting passes have been played or when a dangerous player has got the ball in an exciting position it tells you to look up now uh, and I think without fans in the stadium viewers at home won't get that kind of cue 
Presumably, because we're in such uh, sort of unprecedented times, this is something that we, has never been done before, and we're sort of going from scratch on this. Is that is that right? Well, so, I mean, so, so there have been games played behind closed doors before, mainly because in situations where fans have been banned from the stadium for being racist, so it's not quite the same uh, thing. Um, but in the nineties, I think it was maybe the eighties, Arsenal had a stand uh, that was closed for kind of reconstruction, and they like put a big sheet over the seating and kind of painted uh individual fans so they had this big painting of like thousands of fans that was behind one of the stands and obviously it was like clearly obviously not real but it kind of helped to kind of recreate that look of at least an, a full stand if not um if not the sound of it uh recently we've seen uh, a south korean team get in trouble for filling the seats of its stadium with blow-up sex dolls instead of fans uh, while playing behind closed doors um and yeah murals being painted on fabric stretched over the seats and things like that um so today, uh, clubs are trialling some slightly more high-tech solutions. So in Denmark, our house have installed a giant video screen. It's a 40-metre wide screen that allows 10,000 fans to kind of dial into this massive like Zoom call and show their support. Um, obviously, that's only like a visual thing. You can't really, it doesn't really solve the audio problem because you can't really chant on a Zoom call. Everyone's out of sync. Um, and all the fans at home will see the goals go in at slightly different times because of delays to the broadcast so you can't really celebrate on mass like you would be able to if you're actually in the stadium and also you can imagine what being on a zoom call with ten thousand people uh would be like if none of them were on mute you just get this kind of wall of like white noise basically um so instead um broadcasters have been exploring kind of artificial crowd noise and pumping that into their like broadcast not not playing out in the stadium but kind of giving it as an option for fans to watch at home so they can add it to their experience if they want to Something quite odd about watching the, the Bundesliga is, as you say, they're not pumping out the crowd noise into the stadium, but they do pump out the warm-up music as the teams are walking out. Some of them have used pyrotechnics. They're putting um, mannequins with shirts in the seats. So they've been trying different things. But you're really right when you say that watching the Bundesliga without crowd noise and only being able to hear sort of these echoing German shouts and the kind of uh, cries of the manager and the players on the bench... It's really odd. It doesn't feel like the same sport. So how are they replicating crowd noise when there is no crowd and you can't get the crowd noise from people watching virtually? Yeah, so there's been a few different approaches. So um, obviously we're quite far behind other countries in terms of our response. So they've been doing uh, this for a few weeks now in, in various other sports. So in Australia, Fox Sports was one of the first broadcasters to try and implement artificial crowd noise so um the uh, nrl rugby league in australia was suspended in march they played they actually played one round without crowds before the league was suspended entirely uh so they kind of got a taste of what it would be like without crowds and they kind of realized that they really needed to um like do something about it if they were going to keep the kind of excitement around the game so they worked with the production company and they built a program it's basically like a kind of giant soundboard basically it has 60 different sound and audio effects that would accompany a game of rugby league and there's a virtual audio director um who basically controls the intensity of this sort of background level of crowd noise which can rise and fall depending on what's happening and then there are individual effects that he can add to that so it's almost like playing a musical instrument he's got like a touchpad and he can move his finger around in this touchpad depending on like how exciting the, the game is so when, when they implemented that um there was a bundesliga game i think it was borussia dortmund playing at home and there was a particularly nasty foul involving an, el an elbow and an aerial challenge and there was something quite odd you could tell that the person that was in control of that musical instrument had decided to turn up the outrage to maximum so he immediately slammed on the like whistling and jeering noise and it went on for sort of a bizarrely long amount of time you were very aware that you were probably watching someone who supported borussia dortmund and had an opinion about the event that had taken place in the game. So it almost added a, another element of trying to listen for when the audio engineer was, was making judgment calls, which, again, it's not quite replicating it. It's almost creating something else. It's quite fascinating as well, though, the, the granularity of like the different sounds that you get. Like There is a noise that I associate in my head with someone accidentally getting elbowed in a football match, and it's quite a distinct noise from a late tackle, and it's quite a distinct noise from someone getting shoved over. These are all kind of... And it, I can't replicate the noises myself, but if I, if, you heard, if I heard them, I'd be able to say, tell you exactly what had just happened in the match. Um, and I think what's really interesting is that, like... So the Fox Sports team kind of then went on to kind of create these specific sound beds unique to venues and to clubs so uh 
the Gold Toast Titans, who are an NRL team, have a fan that beats a drum through the whole game, so that's been incorporated. Melbourne Storm have a fan with a cowbell, who is presumably very popular among the people that sit near him normally, so that's been kind of added to the the, uh, game as well. I remember, like... um, the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, um, there was those really annoying Viva Zaylas, um constantly throughout the game. It was kind of droning, droning, droning noise. And when they brought out the official game of that tournament, it was there as well. And they'd kind of replicated it to such an extent where you're actually, maybe I didn't want this kind of like noiseless drone kind of being brought through into the video game version of this as well. But they have replicated it um, like for like. Um, so yeah, they've got, as you said, they've got um, specific sounds for specific uh, aspects of play. So when it comes to the Premier League, do we already have that kind of uh, sound database? Are we just going to be playing old games and you know, switching the sound up a bit? What, what resource are we going to be drawing on? Yeah, so uh, yeah, so Fox Sports were using, as you say, Matt, they were using the previous meeting between the two teams to kind of act as a base for their audio. Um, we are actually quite lucky in the Premier League because we've got an amazing database of, of dynamic crowd noise from from all sorts of clubs from the FIFA video game series and other football football simulation games and it is like insanely detailed so there are club specific chants uh, I'm a Bournemouth fan and when I hear uh, the, the, the noise on FIFA it sounds exactly like the game to the point where I can recognise specific people in the crowd noise that's been recorded for FIFA which is like incredible uh, so uh, when the Premier League starts again on Wednesday next week um, Sky will Sky viewers will get the option to add this kind of dynamically generated crowd noise that builds on this database of sound from FIFA. Um, now it's not quite as it's not quite automatic in the sense that it's not a it's not generated by software. You know, it's still going to be someone pressing buttons. So there will be that thing that James talked about of uh, you know it's it's going to be filtered through the bias of whoever the audio director is, I guess, because. In a video game, obviously, the game engine knows exactly where the ball is at all times, but, you know, our, our audio director is going to have to press the close shot button or the, you know, uh, someone just hoofed it out of play button or whatever it might be to, to trigger different effects. Um, but we might see kind of a more sophisticated system come into play, you know, at some point had using AI to determine what sound should be played because there are like loads of factors ranging from the venue the score the player who has the ball the speed of the ball is moving the positioning of all the players so it's quite hard to weigh up exactly which sound should be played for a computer program to do yeah it seems like it's something that they'll obviously sort of trial and error and there'll probably be a couple of examples where um some sort of sort of sound that's played at some point will make a headline somewhere in the news when somebody's got the wrong sound at the wrong point or i don't know that'll probably happen at some point but this is obviously sort of at the moment the systems that have been developed very short term what what happens if this goes on for a long time because at the moment sort of like a lot of countries around the world as they're coming out of lockdowns um big gatherings are one of the things that are sort of very much prohibited and sort of um are probably likely to be for several months or maybe even a year or so depending on uh how things play out so what's what is there a bigger long-term goal here or is it just like let's get something in play and then leave it at that i think well there, there are sort of like sports tech is quite an interesting area there's always like hundreds of startups kind of operating in this this uh fan experience kind of realm and like this is really their time to shine because they're they're very their whole thing is like you know adding to the fan experience when you're in the stadium or like enabling people to connect with other people when they're watching on tv so they've kind of got this real opportunity to show that the technologies they've been developing are actually useful um so there's a canadian startup called champ tracks which has got an app which uh gets around that problem we talked about earlier of zoom like a, a, a mass zoom call basically descending into white noise so it actually uh, does something similar to what we're doing here in that it records audio using the person's microphone and then it aggregates it into an audio stream so that you, d- you don't end up with this white noise and you end up with a kind of curated uh, collection of, of what fans are doing. Uh, and, and this can kind of like help uh, create chants and things like that. Uh, as long as a critical mass of people on this app are like saying the same thing, it would kind of combine it into something that would be a distinct chant that you could hear rather than white noise. Um, another company uh, in Iceland called Oz Sports has been developing technology that uh, would use AI and AR to superimpose fans onto empty seats in the stadium. So if you couldn't go to the stadium yourself, you could create a little avatar of yourself and kind of 
get that projected onto your seat so that it would show up on the broadcast. Now, this is obviously not going to happen, but um, it is kind of an interesting example of the kind of things that people are trying to do. There's a line in your notes that you didn't read out that they'd be able to shake their phone to move their avatar around. I mean, I admire ingenuity in all of its forms, but something about that just doesn't seem right. It's, yeah, it's a little bit... uh... Well, it's just, it's just a bit rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds rubbish, but, you know, until until live sport comes back, maybe that's the best we can hope for, you know, doing a, a virtual uh, Mexican wave with uh, 40,000 other people all across the world. It's a new what normal I don't think I'm quite ready for yet. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you're big into your sport. It's not just football that's and rugby that are coming back, of course. Uh, cricket's returning to competitive action in the coming weeks. How are you taking part? How are different leagues in your country approaching this in different ways? And of course, if you're in New Zealand, they're soon to see the return of sport complete with crowds having eliminated coronavirus from within their borders. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Ducks, Matt Burgess. (laughs) Yes, uh, and also no. Um, So... For the last few months, I've been spending some uh, time chatting with uh, the team behind the search engine and uh, web browser on phones, um, DuckDuckGo, which is a sort of privacy-focused app and primarily search engine. Um, And basically, um, all of this time was sort of spent... spent with them remotely because of the, the circumstances but been trying to tell the story of how in Europe there is a very big um, underlying battle going on uh, between search engines and the European Commission and also Google around uh, which um, search engines are sort of shown on your phone when you set it up um, because I haven't seen you for so long uh, in in the flesh um, do any of you use Android I cannot remember yes Okay, so it's just just James that's got an Android phone. Um, so when you when you set up your phone, whenever this was, do you remember picking what search engine you wanted to use? I mean, it only would have been about five months ago or so. It's a relatively recent phone, and no, I do not remember that at all. Um, I mean, it's probably a, a fairly sort of inconsequential thing in the bigger picture to remember um, anyway. But um, from from about now and. Uh, across the rest of this summer uh, if you get a brand new um android phone in europe you'll get you'll be able to choose what search engine is your default provider um, and this is the first time that this has ever happened so back in 2018 um july 2018 uh, the european commission fined google four billion um euros which is the biggest fine that the european commission has ever issued to google um for essentially um abusing the android operating system to um deepen its stronghold on search um so there were a few different reasons why but essentially in in the in the to to narrow it down it was uh, google was pretty much using its strong position its its position as a developer um to be able to uh, make sure that everybody with an android phone used google search and that's in sort of like the widgets that are on the home page uh, also through the search engine in chrome um and just generally you had to use it um, and now this is the first time that this is changing so as when I switched phones, I was on Android before and I switched to another Android, I was very keen to try and replicate the settings that I had on that phone. And Android has sort of a transfer system so you can move across all your stuff. And even with that, it was really, really difficult to unhook Google from the various things I'd sort of got it out of before. So I used Firefox, I used DuckDuckGo for search. Um, I use Google Maps, but the, there are various bits of Google that I don't want hooked into other bits of Google. Um, and it's really, really hard to unpick all of that. So giving people such a stark choice as to which search engine would you like to use is, is potentially hugely, hugely powerful, right? Yeah, so um, the way that this is is working, and as I say, this is only just starting to happen now and on new devices, not old devices. When you set up um, your new phone, which is an Android, uh, there will be in the sort of like the settings where you pick your Wi-Fi networks and you uh, set up your uh, fingerprint or things like that. In the, in this setup, there will be a screen, which is a choice screen, which will have four different options on it. And these will vary depending on what country you're in. Um, and they will allow you to set your uh, default search provider. Google will always be on there because it is the 
company that has created uh, Android in this system. So it gets, it says that it basically gets to be on there by default. And then there'll be three other choices. Um, and this is sort of determined from uh, an auction period. Um, so uh, Google has set up an auction uh, which runs every three months. And if you are a rival search engine to Google, you have to be able to um, bid to uh, get your place on this screen. And those that bid the highest amount of money will be able to be shown as an alternative. So let me get this straight. So Google was told to stop doing a thing, was fined for doing this kind of market dominating practice. And then as part of their fix, they were like, oh, yeah, our competitors can pay us to have the privilege of being part of this list. That sounds kind of unfair to me, right? Yeah, so this is where sort of some of the tensions are currently lying. So I've been speaking to, as well as Dr. Go, like most of the other sort of search providers around Europe, and a lot of them aren't happy with how this has all unfolded. Um, they generally all agree that uh, having a search choice menu is a good idea. They think that this is something that could increase competition. Um, but they say essentially that uh, they're pretty much being made to pay Google's fine. Um, the way that sort of antitrust um, and competition law works in Europe and the way that the systems of sort of fining and decisions are made essentially puts uh, coming up with fixes to problems on the companies um, that have been found to be doing wrong. So that's not something that's wrong with Google. So Google has come up with this. The European Commission has looked at it and seemingly given it a, a nod through, although it does say that it is still investigating. But um, essentially, this is allowed and this is what's happening. And other companies say that um, there shouldn't be an auction. It should be free for anybody to be on there. There shouldn't just be four options of um, of, uh, of different default search providers. Um, and there should essentially be a lot more choice for consumers. Uh, in terms of like them paying back the, this fine for Google, uh, a few of the people involved with this who couldn't sort of publicly speak uh, named and attributed on this were saying that originally Google set a price for per user that selects one of those options that was very high for uh, people to bid. So you had to bid uh, within about sort of like 20 to 25 pounds roughly um, if a user selected you um, to be on that screen and then essentially it dropped this because people weren't happy and uh, allowed sort of free bidding so co companies involved could then set bid freely select whatever price they thought and the winners would go for it and it turns out that the actual sort of overall winning prices are very low in some countries so we're talking like pennies per user which is very different to um to what was actually laid out. So it seems that I don't think Google will make a huge amount of money off this, but there are fears from Dr. Go and uh, other country, companies that over time the prices will increase and uh, there'll be less competition overall. So is this, is this kind of what the European Commission intended when it fined Google? Is, is this Google kind of wriggling out of the, the punishment that's been handed down? Or is, what, what, did the, what did the EC hope would happen when it, when it kind of forced Google into making changes? Yeah, so these um, these decisions are quite complex and difficult and there's a lot of negotiations going on and Google is sort of appealing this fine. Um, but its method of having an auction is also um, a remedy that is put in place in uh, another antitrust case uh, from the European Commission, which was also around search and uh, more specifically shopping and search. Um, so this sort of mechanism has... Um, precedent in terms of very recent antitrust cases, but also there are two other examples of when uh, these types of choice screens, maybe not auctions, but choice screens have been uh, allowed in the past. So when Microsoft uh, was found to be illegally uh, bundling Internet Explorer with Windows, um, the European Commission made it put in place a choice screen for people's browsers. So uh, when you've got a new computer, you would uh, pick which browser you're using. Um, and that essentially, that was... Uh, used in the European Commission and across Europe for a few years. And then more recently, um, on this very same issue of choice on Android, um, a uh, Russian, primarily Russian search engine called Yandex, which is the biggest um, search engine in the country and is very dominant there. Um, they also made the same sort of complaint about Android choice to uh, Russia's uh, antitrust uh, unit and they came up with the same sort of decision that Google was in the wrong as the European Commission have done and in uh, in Russia um, they made um, Google and Yandex they essentially worked together so both companies ended up with a choice screen that was out there and 
existing devices that were already in the market, people that owned them had to have um, a choice as well. So it wasn't just for new phones. And having that on sort of like a pop-up come up on other people's phones, every phone that was available essentially ended up uh, changing Google's dominance. So Yandex is now the biggest uh, search provider in the country, which it was before Android rolled out and sort of Google had this dominant position. There's a couple of things that are going on here, right? Google has been so dominant for so long that most people don't even know that there are competitors to Google. It's become a verb. You you Google it just like you get in an Uber. You don't get in a, a Lyft or if, if, if you're outside of the US, you, you always get in an Uber pretty much. So what's this really about? Are there credible competitors to Google or is this just small European companies using regulators to try and steal away Google's hard-fought gains? So yeah, there's a few different things going on and it, you can't get away from the fact that Google provides a very good product and it's got very good search and there is a reason why um, it has become very dominant in terms of like user choice. Um, but then you also see issues like this European case that's going on um, that shows that it's used its um, used its stronghold already in the market to strengthen its position further. So there is an element of that as well. But there's obviously this like strong position from Google. But a lot of the competitors say that there are other ways to do things. So DuckDuckGo is, uh, is essentially anonymous. It doesn't collect data on your browsing. It doesn't serve uh, targeted ads that will follow you around the web. Um, and they argue that privacy should be a lot more simpler than it is at the moment. Um, and that there shouldn't be the same sort of data collection. And people should be able to have a choice when it comes to um, comes to what they're using for search because as you say James it's pretty much become sort of Google is uh, Google is search and in a lot of countries and pretty much every country it is dominant and there isn't any strict evidence to say that having this choice screen will change uh, the market position so some testing that DuckDuckGo did they put they created a choice screen through sort of user research and had 18 different options on there they put google at the bottom and pretty much in all the cases they found that um everybody would still go to google because it was the name that they knew they picked they they selected that because it was the one that they wanted but it also increased the amount of times that other people selected different options so not just DuckDuckGo and their argument is very much the um, the market needs to be fairer altogether rather than just Google having this this position of dominance and people need to be given a choice and that choice should be given fairly and uh, crucially for the companies that are involved uh, freely. There was an interesting line in your feature which I encourage everyone to go and have a read because there's tons of detail in there. It was basically DuckDuckGo and its competitors, the other competitors to Google, don't really expect that many people to choose them over Google. What they want is for people to see their little logo and name on that choice screen so that they start to build a bit of brand awareness. And if they convert a few people, then fine. But what this is really about is getting more people to be aware that DuckDuckGo exists that um, I don't even know the names of all the rest of them. That's part of the problem, right? Which is Lycos. why you're seeing Lycos. I don't think, does Lycos still exist? I could Google it right now. No, not Google it. Um, which is why you're seeing big billboard adverts from DuckDuckGo all around the world, across the well, across the US and the UK at the moment. DuckDuckGo is going really heavy on the marketing just to try and raise some brand awareness. Because you say that there's dozens of competitors to Google across Europe. I'm struggling off the top of my head to think of more than two yeah you would um i think it's a thing that people haven't really thought about and it's it's people just do uh, associate search with google but there are competitors and there are uh, competitors with bigger market shares as well so uh, in uh, in uh, the czech republic there is a company called uh Cessnam, and they were before sort of google came but they were launched before google came around and it's a very sort of local product and it um is one of the sort of like it has a big market share in the country it's i think it has been overtaken by google or is there or thereabouts now but um it's one of these countries where there does exist another option in russia as i said yandex is bigger than google uh now on mobile search i think that's like 55 percent to 40 something percent after the changes that were made there um so there are in markets where there's a very strong brand um that isn't google that 
and is quite often a local brand. So uh, in both of those cases, in both in the Czech Republic and Russia, those search engines, they do taxi services, they do email, they do all different sorts of options. Um, so they're in the same sort of model as uh, Google and some of the other big tech companies where they are doing, trying to do everything and they are well-known brands. Then they these other companies can compete with Google, but in a lot of elsewhere in Europe, there isn't that sort of local um, competition and uh, company that exists and uh, Dr. Go and others are trying to sort of capitalize on this sort of like brand awareness building that and uh, trying to offer something that isn't what everybody's used to already podcast at wired.co.uk we've got a very international audience of listeners do you use a local alternative to google or might you be persuaded to give one a go having listened to this or are you a duck duck go fanatic do let us know podcast at wired.co.uk will include a link to matt's feature in the show notes and it's also in the latest edition of wired magazine matt reynolds would you like to do the segue that you've written for the next story i have written can you eel the love tonight which i think we can all agree is a pretty excellent pun no it's world class and it's relevant as well because we're going to talk about love. We are, we are. This is a story all about love. No, it's a story that's all about eels. And before we dive in, you know, to the, to the slimy topic of eels, allow me to do some scene setting for you. Okay, so imagine you're a fly on the wall in a scrappy warehouse in this city on the northern coast of Spain called Santander. Inside, it's dimly lit, but the walls are lined with row upon row of suitcases. So as far as you look, there's just suitcase stacked upon, suitcase stacked upon, suitcase. In walk two people, they're dressed as tourists. They pick up a suitcase and they go back to the airport and they catch the next flight right back to Hong Kong. Now, what you don't know is that those people are actually international criminals but they're not trafficking drugs or diamonds. Inside each of those suitcases, they're stuffed with something that's almost as valuable, and that is baby eels. Baby eels are almost as valuable as diamonds, or are you using a slight bit of journalistic license there? Yes, well, actually, interestingly, this has been a bit of a bone of contention. Now, I just, you know, they're almost as valuable as very cheap diamonds, probably. Maybe (laughs) as valuable as one diamond. What I can tell you is uh, a kilo of eels, its end market value is about the same as a kilo of heroin. I think it's about £22,000. But there's, you know, I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of leeway in that. But the point is, is there is massive money in eel smuggling. In fact, the illegal global trade in European eels is worth up to 2.5 billion pounds every year and this issue really really came to a uh, you know the national stage because in February this year Gilbert Koo who's a Malaysian born seafood trailer, trader trader who was convicted of moving 53 million pounds worth of eels through the UK between 2015 and 2017 that was 6.5 tons of live baby eels they're called glass eels and um, what happened is that that Koo was actually uh, he was sentenced to 2 years suspended uh, in jail in March and what they realised, and, and how they kind of did this um, this heist, is a national crime agency had been tracking him and his movements, and he seemed to be carrying a lot of chilled fish on these flights from Heathrow to Hong Kong. And on February twenty seventh, uh, sorry, February twenty third, uh, twenty seventeen, uh, as he stopped off a plane in Hong Kong, he was arrested because they found that he was ca- travelling with two hundred kilos of glass eels and since this arrest this has been a kind of you know a landmark issue in the uh, in the world of uh, eel trading and eel smugglers have got a lot cannier so instead of what they did before is it have these large you know containers that kind of look you know if you go to the fishmonger you see these kind of polystyrene boxes that are inside plastic boxes that you carry fish in well instead of that they're turning to suitcases and what they do is they pack all of these writhing glass eels in, inside these kind of uh, plastic bags full of water and of course airport scanners are not very designed for uh, detecting live eels so they don't flag anything as suspicious they actually look a bit like bundles of clothes and what the smuggling gang- gangs realise is that generally um, I think uh, bringing stuff into Hong Kong the, the 
prosecutions are not usually bought for stuff over about 50,000 euros, sorry, under 50,000 euros. So they tend to pack the suitcase with um, as many kilos of eels that just kind of comes under that and try and get away with it. So it's a huge trade and people are getting more, more wily now. Um, why is this? Why is this illegal? Like, what are the legitimate channels that I could use if I wanted to bring my eels into the country? If I was moving house, or you know, I wanted to sell them, <laughs> sell them on the, uh, you know, an online marketplace like Eels Are Us or whatever. Like, um, <laughs> why is it illegal? Yeah, or Eel Bay. Uh, <laughs> that's like much that. better that's You'll be <laughs> a, million, a million times better than Eels Aros I'm sorry I'm sorry everyone hey that's okay so I've, I've been in the, the eel world for a while um, yeah yeah well exactly in, in fact um, so the, the specific eel that we're talking about here is the European eel which is a bit I have to say quite an unimaginative uh, name for the eel and actually the European eel it's, it's illegal to export it outside of Europe but there is a kind of controlled trade within Europe so eels are uh, eaten a little bit within Spain they're eaten in a kind of few countries in Europe but the reason why it became illegal is because eels used to be really really common as we know in the Doomsday book you know I think in the total book around 500,000 uh, eels uh, were charged in taxes um, but despite this, despite being really, really common in the UK, they're becoming way, way uh, less common. And that's really problematic because we actually barely know anything about eels. So there's um, the eels breed in a place called the Sargasso Sea, which is kind of, uh, it's a bit in the Atlantic. It's kind of, I mean, this is quite difficult to, to pinpoint, but it's kind of off the coast of America. But it's actually a huge bit of the ocean. And no one really knows uh, how eels mate or you know, how long it lasts for or what depth it takes place at. So it's one of these great unsolved questions. No one really knows where all these eels come from. In fact, I was looking this up and one scientist, there's a French scientist whose famous last words, he was like, of all the questions in the world, the last we need to answer is the eel question. And this is a huge <laughs> thing. In fact, Sigmund Freud was really, really obsessed with how eels mate. You know, it seems this kind of scientific mystery. Of course, yeah. And before you know, all that psychology stuff that he did, he was really interested in eel testicles and spent a lot of time researching them and, and digging them up. But what we know is that after they mate in the in the kind of northwestern Atlantic, um, they they migrate to Europe, right, where they end up in our well, often they end up in the Bay of Biscay, sometimes as far uh, north as Norway. But what happened, you know, what's been happening since the 1980s is that because of uh, damming rivers, so a lot of eels like to kind of go up into these European rivers. Um, eel populations have been absolutely crashing, right? So between 1980 and 2010, they fell to uh, you know, 10% of the level they were in the 1960s. And this caused, uh, you know, this caused this designation as a critically endangered species. And this brought in the legislation that banned their export. But while those eel numbers were falling, the Asian market for the meat grew. So eels are really popular. They're, you know, they're, they're grown and eaten as food in Japan and China and Hong Kong. And because this demand cannot be met by the local Japanese, eel, we started to see all these unscrupulous traders that started to illegally import the much more numerous European eel. Yeah, so obviously now it seems like the, the trade in eels is, is pretty big and, and there is a demand for them. Um, do we have a sense of how people are fighting back? Uh, do we know how authorities are eeling with this? Oh, how they're eeling with it. That's, that's pretty good. That's, oh, jeez. How, how long were you sitting on that one for? Lockdown's got me. Yeah, it, right, it's appreciated. Yeah, so, so, but it's completely right. So this is actually a massive deal. So Europol has, I quite like this name, right? They have Operation Lake, which is their transnational in initiative to tackle the trafficking of endangered species. And they specifically look at the European eel, because in terms of species trafficking out of Europe, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure eel is the largest trafficking that happens out of Europe. We spoke about sea cucumbers uh, not so long ago, but you know eels are a, you know, a massive issue as well. So this Operation Lake has been running since 2016, and it involves not only those countries with eel fishing industries, you know, Spain, Portugal, France, and the UK, but also places as far afield as Ukraine, because often these are places that um, either the eels are transported through, or perhaps these are criminal gangs that operate in one area, and then they kind of move to a different area. And I should say, what's happening here is that they take these eels from, say, places in Spain, and they're baby eels, they're really tiny, they're called glass eels, and they weigh almost nothing. 
And what, what happens is they're sent to Asia and they're sent to eel farms where they'll kind of grow and they'll beef up and then they are uh, slaughtered and actually sold as food. So it's basically one to two years afterwards. So they're, they're taken to Europe, uh, sorry, they're taken out of Europe to be bred. Um, and, you know, so we spoke to someone from uh, Europol who heads up this Operation uh, Lake. His name is Jose Alfaro. And he said, um, you know, the figures involved are, you know, they're enormous. Um, but... Europol's work so far has proved so effective that trafficking gangs are starting to turn to other endangered species. So they're looking at the American eel. Like I said, these naming, really, really boring. We've got Japanese eel, American eel, Europe, European eel. So instead, Europol is having to you know, broaden its scope to look across the Atlantic. But actually, what we find is that, although it might not sound particularly glamorous, you know, it's not drugs and it's not uh, diamonds, as I said, you find that the same gangs that are involved with eel smuggling also are involved with all kinds of um, human rights abuses, right? So they often push drugs, they're in people trafficking, they're in money laundering, and it's all to do with this um, you know, illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing industry, which we already know is a hotbed for modern-day slavery and tax evasion and fraud in Southeast Asia. So this whole eel question is actually tied up with this much wider problem of organised crime you know, between your Europe and Southeast Asia. You can go after the gangs, but the eels are still going to be there. And of course, if they're not being illegally fished, then the numbers are going to recover and then there'll be even more eels and even more illicit money to be made. So surely the only way to tackle this is in the way that we're tackling the trafficking of other endangered species, which is to reduce the demand. So how would you go about persuading consumers in Asia that they don't want to eat these endangered European eels. Yeah, so that's basically, that's one of the areas where some of the most recent work is being done and some of that pressure is being applied. So in countries like, um, you know, in Japan and Hong Kong, there's a lot more cultural pressure now to avoid these endangered species. So uh, Pack and Shop, which is a major brand in Hong Kong, have established its own eel testing lab to try and work out which eel is being, um, uh, you know, which eel is being eaten. One problem is, is that, as I said, we don't know a whole bunch about eels. And also these eels look very, very familiar. So you can't necessarily tell uh, where an eel came from when you're eating it. Um, there's also a Japanese supermarket chain that's imp- implemented, um, it's basically kind of implemented like an awareness plan to take it, uh, in endangered species off their shelves. But of course, one consequence of the coronavirus pandemic is that it's getting people thinking about how they eat wild animals. And obviously we saw a lot of um, attention on the markets in, in Wuhan, where we think coronavirus started. Um, what's certainly true is that in Hong Kong, uh, uh, the average person, you know, eats around 70 kilograms of seafood uh, per capita every year. In the rest of the world, that figure is about 20 kilograms. This is kind of problematic in the overall dynamic because we think that in terms of food production, actually sea protein is a little bit more efficient than land protein. So on an environmental level, we probably do want to be eating more more seafood, generally speaking, if you want to keep your protein level um, up to the same amount. But... Um, but also there's this problem because there's all these problems with fishing and especially if we're talking about endangered species. So it's fair to say that that demand is not going to disappear overnight. It's like saying in the UK, oh, well, you just can't eat beef, right? You just have to remove this huge part of your diet. But there are signs that tastes are shifting. So sales of eel meat replacements in Asian supermarkets and some of these are tofu. There's a there's a fish called uh, pangasia, which is kind of a, a plentiful river fish. They're being sold as eel replacements. And in Europe, uh, 95% of eels eaten in the Basque region are in fact shirimi, uh, or shirami, I can't remember how to pronounce that, um, which is an artificial eel that is made of white fish, but has eyes painted on it for authenticity and we actually think that this kind of reduced demand might be leading to us to a slightly more hopeful situation so anecdotal reports from fishermen who've been talking with sustainable eel researchers are saying that well this year's migration seems like one of the biggest in living memory and we're kind of hoping that maybe these numbers are going to get back up from 10 percent and might be heading back to their peaks you know before the 1980s Never say we don't bring you variety. We've had eels, we've had Freud's obsession with eel testicles, crowd noise, ducks, absolutely everything. No magpies, just signs of magpies past. But we'll bring uh, Amit back on the show next week or the week after and, and find out 
the truth about the magpies podcast at wired.co.uk with anything that's on your mind any questions that you've got for us we didn't have a particularly bumper selection of emails in the inbox this week so please do get in touch we really do like hearing from you and reading out some of your emails on the show Amit you're going to take one of the emails that we did get this week yeah, Frederick wrote in about the uh, piece that I spoke about last week um, around Sweden's coronavirus response, which has been uh, by turns praised and criticised by uh, and everywhere else in the world. Um, Frederick wrote in to say that he felt that uh, our discussion could have been more nuanced, uh, but recognises that he's not impartial about the topic. Um, he points out that although Sweden hasn't kind of officially locked down in the same way as other countries, uh, daily life is not like it was before. It did a lot of soft adjustments, so... It's easier to get sick pay uh, when you feel ill, so people can don't have don't feel like they need to go into work. Gatherings of fifty or more people are illegal. Retirement homes are closed for visitors. Although he says this happened too late, um, he says the public health agency, uh, because it's responsible for kind of all health, uh, they also considered factors that may have been exacerbated by a potential lockdown, such as domestic violence. Um, he his point is basically that. Uh, Although, you know, the number of deaths in Sweden has been needlessly high, that it's probably too early to say whether the actions were taken were good and what actions were bad. Um, I, I, while I do, I do agree with that, I think it's important to... And I, and I don't think we'll be able to say who, who won coronavirus, in inverted commas, in the kind of, until, the, until years, years away from now. But I do think it's important to kind of look at what other countries are doing, kind of learn what they're doing, particularly if we're going to be facing a second wave in the next few months. I think it's really vital that countries kind of learn from each other about best practice and, and what not to do as well and, and I think that's why we're so keen to kind of report out these stories as and when they happen uh, and I think of course you know in a year or two we'll obviously be able to give you a fuller picture of, of what the best approach was and hopefully prepare us a bit better for the next pandemic than we were prepared for this one. And while the science at this point right might not be definitive politicians want to use situations elsewhere in the world to make or force through political decisions so in the UK and elsewhere, Sweden has been by some held up as a reason to lift lockdown restrictions. So while the science might not be clear at this point, politicians are trying to use situations elsewhere to change the situation closer to home. And, and that's where it becomes really, really important to report on these things as they are happening to the best of your ability with the facts available, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's literally why we were so interested in Sweden as well, because it was being used as this sort of... Uh, yeah, like uh, example, uh, it, it, it had been dragged in the political sphere, and it was almost like a a story about politics rather than a story about the science itself. It was about why Sweden was being held up in this way, and whether the assertions that were being made about Sweden were actually true or not. Yeah, thanks very much for your email, Frederick. Podcast at Wired dot uk. Please do get in touch, and we'll read out as we do every week a selection of your emails on the show. A final reminder to sign up for the Wired podcast pub quiz we're recording live on wednesday july 1st at 8 p.m london time you can watch the wide podcast team compete for matt reynolds's trivia crown and play along at home as well and ask us any burning questions you might have we're doing it via zoom via zoom the last show was a really big success and we want to make this one even bigger and better head to tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz two to register your place matt burgess once more with the url please it is tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz two brilliantly read thank you very much for listening as ever and we look forward to see you again next week have a good one bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. bye.